Davis is connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. What's going on in Chicago? What the hell is going on? Covering the big ideas. If you do not feel well, for God's sake, stay home. Save a lot. The tough choices. Guacamole? No, I like guacamole. And the only three ways a Chicago alderman leaves the city council. The ballot box, the jury box, or the pine box. Now, Bill Cameron. Tammy Duckworth is here. She's the junior senator from Illinois, a Democrat, who's up for re-election next year. Tammy, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's good to be back on. You got a big $35 billion water bill through Congress. Sounds like a big deal, but break it down for us. What is it going to buy? Well, it is going to allow for people to get lead out of their drinking water supply. Most people don't know that um, uh, Illinois has exponentially more lead pipes than any other state in the union. Uh, We actually have 23 percent of the nation's entire uh, inventory of lead uh, pipelines that are still in use. Uh, Most of that is in the Chicagoland area. So we're going to be able to uh, replace those lead pipelines. It's also going to help um, uh, fix, you know, all of the water main leaks and all of that that's happening. We have a water main leak in this country one every minute, um, and we have a water main break one every six feet. I mean, a, a, a pipe break one every six feet. So uh, we're wasting a lot of money on water that we actually process but never comes out of people's spigots. It goes right into the ground through these leakages. Now, Mayor Lightfoot calls this a $9 billion problem for Chicago, the lead pipes, the service lines. Will this give her the whole $9 billion? This won't give her the nine, whole $9 billion. It, it takes her a lot of the way towards that $9 billion. And then with the American, uh, you know, the, the infrastructure plan that the President Biden is building on, we'll build on this plan. And uh, that will get to her to the rest of the nine billion. Uh, If you listen to the president um, the other night, uh, uh, he made it clear that his intention is to replace 100 percent of the nation's lead pipeline. Now, this is the rare case of bipartisanship on the Hill. How'd you get this done? I, you know, I it was really good. It was um, I had a good time doing it basically by listening to the other side of the aisle and, and listening and. And, and figuring out what I needed to put in the bill to, to help them. Um, so, for example, it has a lot of investments for small rural communities um, through grant programs um, that provide, pro- promote environmental justice. I started the Environmental Justice Caucus, and I've been talking a lot about urban environmental uh, injustice, where you know urban communities, especially um, uh, poorer black and brown communities, tend to not have investments. But it was also my background having, you know, I... I, I trained as a helicopter pilot in Alabama. So I flew over a lot of like rural Alabama and I could see the the pig farms and then the fields of pig waste and all of that. So I listened to my Republican colleagues in these very rural communities and say, hey, you know, what can we do to help you fix the water supply problems that you've got? And I just included that in the bill. And so it passed out of committee unanimously and we had 82 votes for it um, in the full Senate. I'm very proud of the work that we did jointly to get this through. And another big bipartisanship uh, bill was the hate crimes bill, targeted particularly for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. What is what can this actually do to uh, curb hate crimes? It, it would do several things. It does stiffen the penalties uh, for hate crimes uh, against a- Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders because they were not listed as a group uh, that could receive that would get hate crimes. It also 
another key thing in it is that it actually collects the data. So we know that hate crimes against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are underreported, underrepresented. They're often classified as a simple mugging or vandalism or something like that. But what we're finding is that, in fact, a lot of the perpetrators are selecting their victims based on race, and they are selecting Asians, and in particular, Asian women. For example, last year, there was a spike in hate crimes against AAPIs. There were 3,800 instances that were actually reported. Of those, two-thirds were against Asian women. So this is data collection. This is stronger penalties. This is also police education so that they don't just say, you know, um, well, the guy, um, you know, said oriental but you know it really which is a, which is a racial slur um and but you know he was just really out to rob her for money so it's not a hate crime well no if he caught you know if he if he selected her because of her race then that is a hate crime share with folks the experience of your mother at the grocery store the other day yeah this was this was about a, a a little over two weeks ago, she was at the grocery store um, uh, trying to get some fruits from my six-year-old. My six-year-old is like, just refuses to eat fruits. She loved them as a, as a baby, but now she won't eat them. So I'm always trying to figure out things to put into the in her lunchbox. And uh, my mom was just trying to buy her some grapes. And a grocery store employee was following her from produce section to produce section. Every time my mom was would stop and try to, you know, pick out apples or fruit, you know, this worker would say, you need to go over there. You're in the way. You're, you're, you're just, you're just in the way. Go over there. And she kept pushing my mom around. So finally, my mom's like, listen, I'm not here to fight you. I'm just here to buy grapes for a kid's school lunch. Leave me alone. Um, but that happens a lot. And, and, you know, she, my mother's 80 and then she fits appropriately. She's an 80 year old Asian woman. And then they are the target for a lot of the sleep crime that's happening across the country. So you told your mother you got at least something done to help that problem. I did, I did, but you know, I did nothing to bring down the price of grapes or whatever it was she was trying to buy. <laughs> oh, that's true. Now there was only one vote in the Senate against the hate crimes bill, and that was from Josh Hawley of Missouri. What do you have to say to him? I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed, and, and you know, he says that he's got some uh, freedom of speech concerns. I guess he's um, worried that. Somebody who's mugging a person, you know, uh, has a freedom, uh, First Amendment right to call them racist names, I guess. I I don't understand it. And, and it's unfortunate because it could have been unanimous and would have sent such a strong message. But regardless of how Josh voted, the rest of the Republicans voted um, for the bill. And that does send a strong signal to the AAPI population in this country that we will stand next to each other and, and we just will not put up with hate in this country. Has Holly cast his future with Trump, do you think? Oh, definitely. He, he's cast it with Trump. And, 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 you know, I mean, he's not at all regretful for his role in really pumping up the insurrectionists on January 6th either. And he continues to try to, you know, justify them and, and, and um, you know, apologize for them. Not apologize for them, but, you know, but I, I don't know. I don't know what he's doing, but it certainly is not good for our, for our democracy. I am all for healthy disagreement, but... Um, you know, cheering on people who um, stormed our nation's capital, you know, and, and desecrated the halls of, of our nation's history of our democracy is not helpful. Holly did egg them on. Do you suppose he should be censured? Oh, I don't know. I think I think we're past that point. I, I, I think that we just need to focus where I'm focusing, which is on let's get an infrastructure bill out there to help people to get 
you know, money flowing into our economy. The good thing about the infrastructure bill is that that money isn't going to be used by um, corporations to buy back stock. That money is going to go to fix the pothole in front of your house. And the person who's fixing that pothole is going to take his, his paycheck, which is coming out of this infrastructure money, and he's going to go buy lunch at the local diner. And so this money is just going to stimulate the economy and grow our economy um, and, you know, it's something that we desperately need. I mean, Janet Yellen says if we don't do this, we are in for a potential stagnation of our economy for years to come. It's advertised as a $4 billion set of programs, and the New York Times says it's more like $6 trillion. I think I mistakenly said billion. I'm so used to saying billion, I missed the T. I'm still trying to get used to trillion. But how do we afford it, Senator? Well, the thing is, we can't, we, we cannot not afford it. We cannot do not do it. Uh, the, the price tag will be much higher than that if we enter into a stagnating economy for two or three years um, and the economy doesn't grow. Uh, this will create jobs. This will get money growing. This will be a revenue growth initiative um, once the money is, grow, is, is going into small towns all across this country. This isn't just money for, you know, Chicago and St. Louis and Los Angeles and and New Orleans, right? This is money that's going to go into rural communities because roads and rail and bridges are everywhere, and we have to fix them everywhere. And so if we don't do this, we, um, our economy is going to stagnate domestically, and we won't be able to compete uh, internationally either. I mean, in, in the last several years, think about this, Georgia in the United States, not Georgia, the country in, in Europe, but Georgia in the United States, bought corn and soybean from Brazil because it, they could get corn and soybean from Brazil to Georgia faster than we could float it down the Mississippi from Illinois and Iowa because the state of our lock and dams are so in such bad disrepair that we can't move our produce to market fast. I mean, Brazil is feeding us out, selling to our own to our own nation. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a big price tag. Um, but I will tell you that the price tag will be much bigger if we don't do this. Now, uh, the Republicans say when they think of infrastructure, they agree it's roads and bridges and ports and airports, even broadband. But it's not what you guys call human infrastructure. What do you say to those Republicans? Well, you know, and then they're not talking to their working families. I, I want them to they need to go talk to working families and see how working families are struggling right now. This past year alone, moms who traditionally work outside of the home took on 18% more workload during the COVID pandemic when everybody was at home, and women have dropped out of the economy at such tremendous numbers. Uh, you know, and families right now have, are choosing between uh, do I go to work or do I stay home? And we maybe live near at the poverty line, but I because we can't afford childcare. Um, and that's one more person who's out of the, you know, out of the economy that we need in the economy, being productive, helping us to grow. And, uh, you know, I think human infrastructure is very important. And some of the solutions, by the way, for human in infrastructure that have been proposed are really reasonable ones. There's this uh, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand has a bill that I support called the Family Act. And it actually provides for um, – 12 weeks of paid family leave, and it's an insurance program. It's not anything that the government is, is, is paying for. It's a program where uh, employers would pay about $2 a week and employees would pay $2 a week um, into an insurance plan. Uh, and then when you need to take time off from work for uh, someone who's sick in your family or for the birth of a new child, you can take up to 80% paid 
uh, for 12 weeks because you have this insurance program. That is self-reliance. That is taking responsibility for your own future. And that is funded by the employers and the employees and not the American taxpayers. So there's lots of reasonable proposals out there that we can compromise and come to an agreement on. But to turn your back completely on any type of, um, uh, you know, way to improve the situation is not good for our country. I mean, we're the only developed nation, the only developed nation in the world that does not have paid family leave. And the Republicans didn't get up on their feet the other day when Joe Biden was uh, talking to the joint session about cutting child poverty in half by extending the child tax credit, among other things. What do you think of Republicans when they won't get behind that? I don't know. I mean, they not a single Republican voted for the American Rescue Plan, and this was the, the cutting the child poverty in half was in the American Rescue Plan. I would have thought we would have gotten some Republicans voting for it. I mean, this is money that states and local governments all across the country. We're not just talking about democratic government, but, but state and local governments in, in, in red parts of the country and blue parts of the country, they all said the same thing. Please, we need this money. We are desperate right now. We're laying off uh, firefighters. So Peoria had to lay off firefighters. Rockford couldn't hire uh, new police officers. This was happening all across the country. They voted against you know, this money for, in that plan, was money for vaccines to increase vaccinations. There was money in there for school districts so that they could keep their school districts clean and get our kids back to in-person education. And yes, there was a tax credit that lifted 50% of the kids in childhood poverty out of childhood poverty, and not a single Republican voted for it. And that, to me, is really, really sad. That is letting partisanship come before the well-being of the people. And, um, you know, I'm I'm disappointed in them. But they did come together with me for the water bill. So (laughs) maybe there's some hope. Yeah. Well, how confident are you you can raise taxes on the rich to pay for all this? I'm confident that that we can do it. I don't know if we're going to get uh, uh, 100% of the Republicans uh, to vote for it. Remember that uh, we're talking about corporations um, like General Electric that paid, like GE, that paid no federal taxes. We're talking about people uh, with a net, you know, who with a net income of greater than, uh, with income, sorry, greater than $400,000 a year. Uh, These are folks who all got tax cuts under President Trump. Why someone who makes more than $400,000 a year needs a tax cut is beyond me. Why GE uh, should be able to not pay any taxes is beyond me. That's where we're going to get the money to um, stimulate our economy, fix our bridges, fix our schools. You know, our kids should be able to go into a school and drink a drinking out of the drinking fountain and not be worried about being poisoned by lead. We're talking issues with Senator Tammy Duckworth. Tammy, you used to be uh, Director of Veterans Affairs here in the state of Illinois. Wondering what you think about that uh, LaSalle Veterans COVID outbreak report. Very damning. Very damning. I am very, very disappointed. You know, I I, um, uh, once was uh, the Illinois Department of Veterans Affairs Director and and was once in, in charge of those four veterans' homes. Um, uh, and, and that is a tremendous responsibility. I will tell you what I am doing is I'm asking the VA. And, in fact, I was just um, talking with uh, Secretary of Veterans Affairs, um, uh, Dennis McDonough, just about a week or so ago, talking about how you know, we really do need to uh, get VA help um, with and expertise with our veterans' homes. And, and he was very much supportive of that. And I talked with the VISN director, which is a network director out of um, uh, out of um, uh, Wisconsin, which is where the uh, the headquarters is for our Midwest region. And uh, she was very supportive with getting more help into the uh, IDVA facilities. 
It is a scathing report that details the mismanagement and widespread incompetence. Even uh, Governor Pritzker regrets ever having hired Linda Chapalavia to be the director. Um, it's unusual that it was so bad. Uh, was it ever any evidence of this when you were running the show? Um, you know, the, the whole when I was running uh, the program, our issue then was the significant budget cuts um, uh, in the state budget that did not allow me to hire the nurses that I needed. I, I, I had a lot of veterans waiting on the waiting list to get in, and I had empty beds, but I couldn't put veterans into those beds because I could not. I, I was not given from Springfield um, the dollars I needed to hire those nurses and those doctors. And then our nurses and, doc- and in particular were always uh, worked overtime. They were exhausted. They were always what they call mandated, they, which is you're not volunteering for overtime. You're forced to do overtime. And it really um, we became this downward cycle where people just quit. And they just couldn't do it anymore. It was just too heavy a, a workload on them. So uh, the challenge that I faced back then was the state budget and not being able to hire enough uh, qualified clinicians to do the job. Um, and, and, you know, I, what I think needs to be done here is for us to really invite the federal VA to come in and look at some of these practices. Because what I'm hearing from the uh, report, again, I have not read the report in detail, but the understanding is it's a mishandling of infectious disease protocols. And that is something that um, can be fixed. That is something that is not just about, you know, just need to hire more people. This is about doing things the right way. And we have to figure out um, if they're doing that now. And um, perhaps we need to get the VA to come in and, and, and take a look. Yeah, it's so bad there may be criminal negligence involved. Yeah, yeah, that is it's terrifying, you know, uh, and, and I'm sure it's terrifying for our veteran families because you, you veterans go into those homes um, uh, thinking that it, and they should be the best care that anybody can have. Um, and I know that so many of the staff are so dedicated and, and I would like to, you know, learn more about how it got to this point. What do you think of Sherry Bustos deciding not to seek another term? I asked her, are you quitting to 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 primary me, Sherry? And she just started laughing. <laughs> um, uh, you know, she had always said that she had kind of a 10-year plan, um, and she'd always said it, and I always thought that she would stay because she's so good at what she does, and she's been such a good partner to me, um, and to Dick as well, especially with the Quad Cities um, and, and, and uh, trying to, you know, work with uh, uh, Rock Island Arsenal and, and bringing, you know, a lot of uh, federal dollars back to the region. So I'm very sad that she's decided not to do this, but um, that just means I get to try to recruit her for something else. Yeah, I saw her chatting up Joe Biden on the floor of the House the other day during the big speech, and I wondered if uh, she's uh, lining up a job in the Biden administration. Have you heard anything? I've not heard anything, but I would be more than happy to be her cheerleader and, and to call the president himself and, and, and you know, to uh, recommend her because she's, she's fantastic. She she really understands what families need on the ground. She can she can go in anywhere, and, she, and her great thing is listening. She comes in and she really listens, and she asks you questions that seem like they're just ordinary, you know, oh, I'm curious about this question, but then you realize that she was actually delving deep into the situation to try to figure out how she could better help solve whatever problem it is that you're facing. So she would be great um, as an appointee. Um, but uh, I don't know if, if, if that's what's in the cards for her. Uh, I'm sad that she's leaving the um, delegation, however, because she's been great to uh, have as part of our efforts. 
down at City Hall, Chicago, Senator, they're preparing to change Outer Lakeshore Drive to uh, to Sable Drive. Is this such a good idea? I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I, 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 I'll let City Hall I'll worry about that one. I, it's um, the least of my worries right now is the naming and uh, uh, the the renaming of, of roads. And it's a little bit of, you know, it's a little bit of a step away from uh, what's happening. But, hey, you know, um, I'm focused on COVID vaccines and uh, water legislation. I mean, I think, you know, honoring, um, uh, you know, uh, the man who was credited with founding the city uh, all those years ago, it's not a bad thing. I just, you know, my focus is somewhere else. I'm not in city government. Okay. Tell me about your military justice reform bill. Why do we need this? Well, we need to make sure that, um, uh, you know, people in the military are uh, getting the protections that they deserve. I mean, my goodness, um, military men and women uh, serve this country. They give up a lot of rights. And, and when they are victims of harassment or uh, crimes, they need to be they need to be protected. And the military, unfortunately, um, especially when it comes to military sexual trauma, has shown that it has not uh, been up to speed with their criminal justice system. The UCMJ, Uniform Code of Military Justice, um, has really failed our, our victims of MST. And, um, you know, we've been, we've been dealing with this for a long time now, and maybe this is, you know, finally the time to change the system because what we have currently is not working. You want to change who the prosecutors are and get it away from the chain of command? In the case, yes, yes, um, uh, because it's shown, you know, we, we've tried it any number of ways, but the same problem keeps coming up. Um, and, and removing the uh, chain of command from uh, uh, investigating and uh, making decisions to prosecute, uh, especially for sexual harassment um, and sexual assault, I think is the right way to go at this point because the military has tried and tried and tried and has been unable to resolve the problems um, despite the various ways and programs that they've put into place over the last 15 years. Finally, any advice to tourists who are thinking about coming to D.C. this summer or the fall in view of the armed camp nature of uh, especially Capitol Hill, but the whole district? Is it worth making the trip? Well, nation's capital is always worth making the trip to come see. Um, it, it's sad that it is the way it is. So the, you know, the um, the barricades were starting to go down um, when we had the recent incident with the gentleman who um, then killed and badly wounded another Capitol Police officer. By the way, the Capitol Police officers have done a tremendous job under really trying circumstances. And thank you to all the National Guardsmen and women who have been on duty um, for a long time now, um, uh, protecting those of us who worked in the Capitol. I, I, look, it's always worth it to come. Uh, I personally prefer to spend my summers in Chicago, but <laughs> if you want to come to D.C., you should. It's your nation's capital. Just make sure you plan ahead. Finally, Tammy, are you missing Cadet Bone Spurs? <laughs> Not in the least. Not in the least. I am, uh, despite the fact that we started this year with uh, an insurrection and uh, an impeachment, I am very happy right now because I am getting to move legislation forward, you know. In just a short four months, I've already passed the anti-Asian uh, hate crime bill, and now I've just passed the water legislature. Um, that's pretty monumental for, for, you know, a senator to be able to get two major pieces of legislation passed um, uh, in success, successive months. 
That's Senator Tammy Duckworth, who's up for re-election next year. Tammy, thanks as always for being with us. It's so great to be on. Thank you so much. After a break, our Connected to Chicago Roundtable with Lynn Sweet, Ray Long, Greg Hines, and Heather Sharon. This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. A look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. Now, Bill Cameron. Time for the roundtable where we just get to tell the truth as always with Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times. She covers Washington. Hi, Lynn. Hi, everybody. Ray Long of the Tribune. Hey, Ray. Hey there, Bill. Greg Hines of Cranes. Hey, Greg. Hey, Bill. And Heather Sharon of WTTW. Hey, Heather. Hey, Bill. Well, gang, two more top city officials announced this week they are leaving the Lori Lightfoot administration. School CEO Dr. Janice Jackson and COPA Chief Sidney Roberts. Heather, the revolving door is spinning. What does it tell you? Well, it tells you that if you take Mayor Lori Lightfoot at her word, that it has been a tough year for everybody and that everybody's taking stock of their lives and maybe making changes after we've all been through the trauma of the pandemic. But there's no doubt that this is a significant amount of turmoil for a mayoral administration. And it was clear that there was no love loss between uh, Mayor Lightfoot and Sidney Roberts, the head of COPA. Um, the mayor had been unstinting in her criticism of that agency's ability to uh, investigate police misconduct. She was especially critical of the 16 months that it took the agency to complete its investigation of the Antoinette Young raid, which we, of course, all saw the video of that left the, the social worker handcuffed and naked and, and begging for the police to help her and figure out that they were in the wrong place. So I think it leaves a lot of questions about what the next two years of, of Lightfoot's administration will look like. It will be very different than the first two years because the mayor certainly relied on Janice Jackson to set the tone at the school district, and she was somebody who was seen as a credible voice not only to the parents, but also she was a principal and a teacher in CPS, but she also speaks to union in ways that, that past CEOs just were unable to. So that leaves a big vacuum of leadership at a time where the police or where the, the schools are trying to reinvent themselves after COVID-19. And, and we've talked at, at ad nauseum almost about the challenges facing the city in terms of police reform and police accountability. Greg, this uh, reminds me a little bit of the revolving door administration of former Mayor Jane Byrne. Do you think this is a big deal? I think it uh, is turning into a big deal, Bill. Uh, Heather is right that uh, the last two years uh, have been extraordinary. Uh, no mayor has ever faced this kind of crisis upon crisis, one after the other, boom, 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 that this mayor has. Uh, and remember that this mayor uh, got the office in part because she wasn't a uh, – she bragged that she wasn't a traditional politician. Well, that cuts two ways. It means you don't know the people, you don't know the players, and that makes it particularly hard. Um, so – uh, you know, up to a point that explains it, but I have to say that some of this, I think, has to do with Lori and the way she acts, the way the mayor acts, uh, and her reputation for being a hard-nosed boss who uh, doesn't compromise. So the, the phrase that gets used a lot is she's a prosecutor by uh, by nature. She kind of staffs and doesn't like to compromise and work things out. Well, that's that's the core of government, and. Nobody's going to succeed.
succeed as the mayor of this town unless you have a, a strong supporting cast behind you, uh, both at City Hall and, and in the city agencies like the CTA or, or, or uh, it's public schools or whatever. I mean, the mayor was without a corporation council for months. She was without a, a CTA board chairman for almost a year. Um, you know, even, ex- even explaining part of it by the difficulties at the time, uh, there's a continuing problem. And, and until she solves that problem and makes people want to come and work for her and stick around, it's going to be hard for her to govern. Ray, uh, of course, Rahm Emanuel and Rich Daly were hard-nosed bosses, difficult to work for as well. Any problem, Ray, you think, in uh, Lori Lightfoot also being hard to work for? Well, I think they came at it with a different uh, approach. Uh, Daly and Rahm uh, both at least had some understanding of the political system, and they were able to deal with that and gauge that when they were making their their choices. Of course, Rahm went ahead and pushed through Shackman-type um, uh, rules to try to to uh, show some change, but he still knew that uh, it, when it came down to it, you may be hard-nosed, but you still have to compromise in the end. How about you, Lynn? What's your take on this? Well, it, it doesn't help her reputation. I for whatever the reason is, turnover is never seen as a positive reflection of a strong management style, no matter what the reason. Uh, but you cut her some slack for her, for everybody has lived through a tough COVID year. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Well, this week in the ComEd case, the bribery case down in federal court, we learned that uh, the feds are probably preparing a superseding indictment which has everybody speculating it might be Mike Madigan, but I'm not so sure. If they had to Madigan, they'd probably announce it by now. Ray, how do you read it? Well, I think going after the king is going to take a while if they do it anyway. So they want to make sure they have all their ducks in a row. One thing that was interesting uh, that came out um, in our reporting this week was that we we learned that uh, two ex-lawmakers – Two ex-House Democrats had been before the federal grand jury and had been asked questions about how Madigan operated the, the House chambers, how he controlled it, how he, how things got done there, how things could be uh, controlled in the minutia of whether bills got killed or, or suffocated. And so that and a third ex-lawmaker uh, we talked to uh, – said that they uh, were talked to by the feds with the same types of questioning, wondering how Madigan uh, ran the ship, ran the control. So that tells us at least that they're looking or putting more scrutiny on the ex-speaker. Greg, how do you read these developments? Um, Bill, there's the distinct impression that uh, John Lausch, who's the departing U.S. attorney, um, uh, is trying to wrap up a lot of business in a hurry. Uh, uh, President Biden, under pressure from uh, from Senators Duckworth and uh, and Durbin, uh, indicated that he's not going to force Lausch out until there's a, a new person uh, ready to ready to take over. Uh, but uh, it, it appears that. Uh, 
that that's going to be sooner rather than later, uh, and that uh, Mr. Laos is, is trying to uh, get some stuff done. I also hear that the current grand jury that's been hearing all these cases is not going to be extended, uh, which means that if you were going to go after Madigan later, you'd have to start off with a whole new crew and re-educate people and go through all kinds of prep and whatever. Um, so what the question is, is right properly phrased, it is do they have enough to knock off the king or not? Um, uh, clearly, there's every indication that that's the intent of the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, that they're zeroing in on them and they're trying to shake uh, trees. But uh, but whether these, this, these latest batch of, uh, of reported interviews is, is an indication that they just want to shore up the case a little bit on the edge or whether they're still not there, I don't know. But I do think we'll find out. Probably in the next three or four weeks, whether whether it's going to happen now, or or whether it happens at all, won't happen for many months in the future. Sounds right, Heather. What do you think? I agree with Greg on this. I think the next several weeks are going to be crucial. Um, but the thing about federal investigations that I am always reminded about is that there's so much that we don't know that we don't know. Uh, certainly, Ray's great reporting has given us a little bit of a, a glimpse, perhaps, into the grand jury. Um, but um, John Lausch has always impressed me as somebody who has been very methodical and that if he's going to bring a case, he's going to bring it after building brick by brick. And that might be what we're starting to see here. But it, it's hard to tell whether after all this time that Congress and Madigan has been in the crosshairs, whether there's actually some, some meat on the bone there. Uh, but we are all champing at the bit to find out. Uh, Lynn, Senator Duckworth was telling me at the top of the show that she thinks that the federal government will be picking up virtually all of the $9 billion tab that Mayor Lightfoot needs to replace all the lead service lines for water service in the city, a part of it in her $35 billion water bill that she got it through Congress, and the rest of it, she thinks, in Joe Biden's jobs plan, which still has yet to be passed. So my question is, do you think the jobs plan is going to get passed? Well, when it comes to talking about water projects, uh, the senator is uh, the chair of the subcommittee dealing with that. So uh, a lot of people may not realize that this has become one of her uh, specialties. And as passage of the bill, I would say iffy right now. I mean, there is no written legislation pending before the Senate. It, the deal is still being discussed. It's not clear what the final shape will be. The administration's trying to sell it. So far, no Republicans on board, and not clear even at the price tag that it's currently at whether you'll have all 50 Democrats. Heather, do you think that uh, the mayor is going to be able to get all of this $9 billion paid for by somebody else? Well, that would sure be just a masterstroke because this is an issue that has bedeviled mayors going back to Richard M. Daley because until the mid-'80s, the city required lead service lines in, in home construction. And Lightfoot is really the first mayor to acknowledge that the city bears some responsibility and should bear at least a percentage of the cost to replace that. Um, however, the plan that she introduced several months ago, basically said, yeah, we'd really like to do something about this, but it's really unclear how we're going to pay for it because of the exorbitant price tag. 
So if if this is able to pass, this is something that she could point to, you know, ostensibly when she's running for re-election in 2023. And this would not be possible, you know, without the Biden administration and potentially without Lightfoot pushing for this. But it's a huge problem that has a significant impact on the health of, of Chicago residents. And really, uh, a massive influx of federal cash is really the only time, only way this would get done in any of our lifetimes. Hey, Ray, the governor was all smiles on Friday announcing that the Canadian-based company, Lion Electric, is becoming the second electric vehicle manufacturer in Illinois coming to Joliet with uh, like 745 jobs, manufacturing 20,000 electric school buses and trucks per year. This sounds really good. Is it as good, do you think? Well, I think it's a real feather in in, uh, the cap uh, of the governor uh, and uh, Illinois and Joliet for for, uh, being able to pull something like this off. As you know, there's an effort uh, in Bloomington to put out electric uh, uh, vehicles, too. And uh, if Illinois can try to build on that, and goodness knows we have the manufacturing base here. We have the manufacturing base of workers, too. This is a great opportunity for uh, Joliet to add to other plants like Caterpillar, et cetera, that they've traditionally had. And this is a, a, a good um, move, even though it, it may not be the size of Detroit yet. It helps uh, Illinois place itself as a, as a, a state that wants to do business um, with the new type of vehicles that are green and uh, theoretically much better for the roads. Greg, is this as good as it looks? Uh, it sounds pretty good, Bill. You never know in the end with these economic proposals. Uh, they sometimes not turn out to be as good as uh, they're billed as, but uh, superficially on its face, uh, it's very good news. On top of the Rivian thing in, uh, in, in central Illinois, in the Bloomington area, uh, it looks like Illinois is starting to carve out itself a little bit of a niche in the electric vehicle business. Uh, that is clearly where uh, where the industry is headed in a rush, and uh, if Illinois has got a couple couple horses in that contest it augurs well for us and the corporate welfare in it is not all that unusual it's the edge tax credit and some capital dollars so it's not even uh, probably can't even be counted against the uh, corporate welfare that pritzker is trying to eliminate asking the legislature to do away with to save money it's always controversial of course to have uh, the type of of incentives that they use to bring in new manufacturers because there's always that question of whether those types of incentives will pay off and we'll we'll see that in the end but it usually takes years to figure out whether it's real or not look at foxconn up in wisconsin how they promised zillions of jobs and zillions of of paychecks and and yet they've now downsized that to a fraction of what it was heather are you skeptical about this deal you know, I'm always skeptical when it's this number of jobs. Uh, you know, nearly 800 jobs in an emerging industry has the potential to be a game changer for the Joliet region 
or it has the potential to be a big nothing burger. And we don't have to look further than the much ballyhooed Foxconn project up in Wisconsin that turned out to be not really anything worth writing home about at all when it was all said and done. Uh, you know, I, I think it is a somewhat of a political issue for the governor to be trumpeting these sort of tax credits at the same time, trying to end a whole other side of them as part of the budget negotiations. But I think he's negotiating from a place of strength with super majorities in the Illinois House and the Senate. And he moved yesterday to sort of quell any dissent over the budget by boosting education funding by about $350 million to meet the education funding formula. So that is probably part of that whole calculus. But uh, it, you know, it remains to be seen whether the, the best laid plans will actually come to fruition. Lots of good news on COVID this week, gang. Uh, the mayor talking about the 4th of July as a time when she can basically reopen Chicago. And uh, the governor talking about June 11th as a possibility. Ray, are our officials a little more optimistic than we should believe? Well, I think they are optimistic. I think everybody wants to open up. And everybody's looking for the best spin on the numbers and the percentages, et cetera. But you have to remember, in the numbers that came out on Friday, there is still 30 deaths from from COVID. There were still 1,900-plus uh, people in the hospital. There were still hundreds of people who were um, on ventilators and hundreds of, of people in the ICU. So you know, it ain't over. And that's the big conundrum here. A lot of people want to throw out their hands and go out and dance. But the problem is, if you do that, and nobody is getting the vaccines and nobody's protected, then that dance may turn out to be your last waltz. Greg, does the business community believe these uh, optimistic numbers, these dates? I think they want to, like the rest of us, Bill. Uh, here's the problem. I think the psychology of the pandemic has changed with the, with the vaccines out there providing some real protection. Uh, it feeds into the mindset that we've been there long enough. We're tired of this. We want to end this. We want to get back to normal and hear the doc say we can take a vaccine. Uh, and there's some some proof, some evidence that the vaccine is working. Uh, the 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 seven-day positivity rate is now down three, somewhere between three and three and a half percent, which is pretty good. Uh, if it gets down into the two percent range, uh, a lot of people are going to be more than raising their hands for joy. Um, but at the same time. Um, we're having a, a little more difficulty now all the time uh, getting the rest of the population vaccinated. Uh, we were doing 130,000 a day uh, a couple, three weeks ago. Now we're down to 75, 80,000 a day. Uh, that that parallels what's happening nationally. Uh, that means we're, while things are better, uh, we're still well short of, the, of uh, herd immunity, as it's called. Um, and and as long as there's a significant part of the population that hasn't been vaccinated, there's always the possibility that some new variant could come in and catch on with the people who haven't been inoculated and spread to the rest of us. So, you know, it, it's hard to stop the train now. If I were the if I were the governor or the mayor, it'd be very difficult to say, "Well, sorry, folks, you're going to have to you're going to have to take it slow." But uh, but uh, you don't want to overdo it either. Do you believe these dates, Heather? What do you think? Well, 
I, I think, again, it's another case of the best laid plans. Um, we are dealing with a situation where, as we have for the past several months, that it is really a race between the variants of COVID-19, which we know are more transmissible and are likely deadlier, um, and the race to vaccinate. And that hasn't changed. The only real difference uh, is that now vaccines are widely available. Anybody can walk into a city of Chicago or Cook County mass vaccination site and get a shot. Uh, also, Walgreens and CBS are also doing walk-ins as well, and that's significantly different than just a couple weeks ago when it was really sort of scrambled to get the vaccine. I, I think, again, you know, um, the governor and the mayor are, are under incredible political pressure to reopen and sort of you know, sort of move toward normalcy, as the mayor said this week. Uh, the, the unfortunate truth of the matter is, is that there's still a significant amount of COVID out there, especially in Chicago, which is averaging 500 new cases a day, which means that the city is still at a high risk level in terms of case counts, uh, and that the neighborhoods where there's the lowest vaccination rate, we're seeing those cases concentrated there. So it's got to be a two-pronged effort. Look, uh, we're making progress. Uh, more people are getting vaccinated, but uh, the, the fewer people who are vaccinated are increasingly likely to get COVID, and um, there's always the risk of severe illness and death. That's Heather Sharon of WTTW. Thanks to her. Also to Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times, Ray Long of the Tribune, and Greg Hines of Cranes. Up next, Nick Gale. <laughs> This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. This is Nick Gale. The city of Chicago continues to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic and with the hope from Mayor Lightfoot that the city will be completely reopened by July 4th, it was announced that the Chicago Auto Show will be returning, although it will be different. Governor Pritzker with the announcement. And this year, the show will operate with a hybrid indoor-outdoor model for the first time in city history, assuring that health and safety here at McCormick Place are our highest priority. The show will be shorter, scheduled to take place from July 15th through 19th. It will use an electronic ticketing process and timed entry to regulate attendance and control crowd capacity throughout the days. For the first time, it will include outdoor events with test tracks and technology demonstrations along Indiana Avenue and surrounding city streets. David Sloan is general manager of the show. It's allowed us to do things a little bit differently, think about the show a little bit differently, and the automakers have really embraced it. Advanced and same-day tickets will be sold online only. Attendees will need to wear masks and fill out a medical questionnaire before entering, but Sloan says proof of vaccination against COVID-19 will not be required. You won't need proof of uh, vaccination, um, but you will have to uh, uh, register. Everyone will register. After they buy a ticket, they'll register, and then they will uh, have to fill out a short medical questionnaire so that we know the people, you know, just like you do when you came in this morning, so that we know that everyone on the show floor is healthy. And uh, one of those questions will be whether they were vaccinated or not, but there won't be a, uh, a requirement. There are 43 events scheduled at McCormick Place this year, with the auto show being the first major event. For Connected to Chicago, I'm Nick Gay. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Matt Mellon for production assistance. I'm Bill Cameron, WLS News.
Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.